is a book of wisdom, or more properly, the book of wisdom. Now, within this book of wisdom, there are some books that pay, uh, pay special attention to the topic of wisdom, and Proverbs is one of those books. Proverbs, as you'll remember, was written by King Solomon. King Solomon was David's son, and he ruled the United Kingdom of Israel from 970 to 931 B.C. And the Bible itself says that King Solomon was the wisest man in the world. In 1 Kings 4.29, it says, And God gave Solomon wisdom. Notice that the source of wisdom is not in man himself, but in God. So, and God gave Solomon wisdom an exceedingly great understanding and largeness of heart like the sand on the seashore. Then verse 31 of that same chapter says, for he was wiser than all. He was the wisest man who ever lived, except for, of course, our Lord Jesus Christ in his his incarnation. So we know that King Solomon wrote other books of wisdom, such as Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. But uh, he wrote the book of Proverbs, and the main theme of this book is wisdom. And its main purpose is to impart wisdom. We read that from the very beginning. The first three verses of the book says, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity. And then we find in the book of Proverbs, frequent exhortations to gain wisdom. For example, in Proverbs 4, verse 5, it says, get wisdom, get understanding. Verse 7 says, wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom. Now, brothers and sisters, what this means is, is that getting wisdom is not optional. Wisdom is not for seminary professors or pastors or other leaders or some old man sitting up on a mountain somewhere. You and I, as God's people, we are all called upon to obtain wisdom. And again, that wisdom is found here in the written word of God. God is the source of wisdom. Now, in the book of Proverbs, it's interesting. The word wisdom and its various forms, wise, wiser, and so forth, it appears 115 times. And so that underscores that the main topic of Proverbs is wisdom. And that's not to mention the related words like knowledge, understanding, instruction, discretion, and judgment, which are all somewhat similar. Well, as the title indicates, and as the first verse of the first chapter indicates, this is a a book that is mainly a collection of Proverbs. And a Proverbs, proverb is, a, is a, a short, a brief saying that conveys some ethical or moral or spiritual truth. But the book of Proverbs also includes several lengthy discourses that would not necessarily be considered to be Proverbs. And we find those discourses sprinkled throughout uh, chapters 1 through 9. And then we jump all the way to end, Proverbs 31. You'll, re- you'll remember that's the godly woman, uh, the whole chapter or most of the chapter devoted to that topic. Well, today we're going to look at one of those discourses, not this or that proverb, but a lengthy discourse. And that would be Proverbs 9, 1 through 6. Let's go ahead and, and read that. And we're going to see that the, uh, in the course of the message that the goal of Increasing in wisdom is not just to collect facts and truths, but it is to know a person, a person who is the very embodiment and source of all wisdom. Let's read. 
Proverbs 1, verse 9, wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her meat and has mixed her wine. She has sent out her maidens. She cries out from the highest places of the city. Whosoever is simple, let him turn in here. As for him who lacks understanding, she says to him, Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine which I have mixed. Forsake foolishness and live and go in the ways of understanding. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the privilege of being gathered together as your children, blood-bought children. We thank you for sending your Son, your only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that he came to this earth and lived a perfectly righteous life. We thank you that he suffered and died on our behalf, bearing the guilt of our sins. We thank you that he was raised from the dead in glory and victory over sin and its consequences. We thank you, Lord, for this book of wisdom that you have given to us, Lord. In your word, you proclaim that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, literally breathed out by you, Lord, through the instrumentality of human authors. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who worked in the lives of those men so as to produce the inerrant, infallible, fully authoritative word of yours, Lord. And we ask now that your Holy Spirit would perform his ministry of illumination. Lord, uh, bless the preaching of the word and help each of us, Lord, open our spiritual eyes and the mind of our understanding that we might grasp the meaning of your word, that we might apply it, and that we might see that ultimately, Lord, it leads to a person who is the very embodiment of wisdom. We pray this, Lord, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and for his glory. Amen. So we have the personification of, of wisdom. Uh, I want to look at uh, this, uh, ver this passage of Scripture from the standpoint of five points. We're going to look at number one, her identity. Now, I stated in the introduction to the message that a pursuit of wisdom will ultimately lead us to a person. Now, you probably noticed as we were reading those verses the, the use of personification. Uh, wisdom has built her house. She's done this. She's done that. Now, what is personification? Well, the Merriam-Webster's online dictionary, uh, one of the definitions is this, the practice of representing a thing or an idea as a person in art, literature, etc. So the practice of representing a thing or an idea as a person in art or literature. Now, we're familiar with this technique. I, I think most of us, uh, maybe if you uh, saw a, an advertisement for an attorney or a lawyer in the yellow pages, and you saw a statue of what is called Lady Justice. Have you ever seen that? It's the statue of a woman, and she's blindfolded because justice is supposed to be blind, right? Not a respecter of persons. In one hand, she holds a set of balances because she weighs out a matter to render a judgment. In the other hand, she holds a sword because she has the power of the government to punish the evildoer. So that's, that's Lady 
justice. That is a personification of the idea of law and justice. Uh, sometimes uh, Lady Liberty is used as a personification of the United States. Before that, it was Lady Columbia, and the United Kingdom has Lady Britannia, and she has on uh, a warrior's helmet and holds a trident to show that Britannia rules the waves, and her shield has the Union Jack, the flag of the United Kingdom. So these are personifications of things or ideas. So what we have in the book of Proverbs is that wisdom is also personified. Wisdom is personified as a woman. Again, notice the language. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars and so forth. So a question might arise, why is wisdom personified as a woman? Why is wisdom personified as a woman? Well, there's probably two answers to that, two things that we need to consider. First of all, in the book of Proverbs, there are times when Solomon is warning his sons against the temptation of an adulterous woman. And we find that in several passages, Proverbs 5 through 7. But also, there is a contrast with the woman folly. If you look down at verses 13 through 18 of the same chapter, it says, a foolish woman is clamorous. The ESV says the woman folly. Do you see that? So here we have folly personified as a woman. So a foolish woman is clamorous. She is simple and knows nothing. For she sits at the door of her house on a seat by the highest places of the city to call to those who pass by who go straight on their way. Whosoever is simple, let him turn in here. As for him who lacks understanding, she says to him, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant, but he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of hell. And so we uh, very likely have wisdom personified as a woman because we also have in the same chapter folly personified as a woman. But perhaps uh, a more uh, stronger argument or consideration as to why wisdom is personified as a woman is this. There are languages whose words, whose nouns have gender. Uh, if some of you would no, doubtless studied foreign languages when you came up through school, uh, grade school, high school, whatever it may have been. And there, you know that there are some languages that have gender. Uh, Spanish and German would be examples of that, modern examples. But it is also true that the original biblical languages, Hebrew and Greek, their nouns had gender. And so in Hebrew, this Hebrew word for wisdom, chakma, is Feminine. It is a feminine word. Now, it's also interesting that the, the corresponding word in Greek is also feminine. Have you heard the word Sophia? Well, of course you have. It's a girl's name. That is the Greek word for wisdom, Sophia. So Chakma and Sophia, Hebrew and Greek, they are feminine words. And so, and so also the pronouns of, of those nouns will match it. Uh, for an example, in Psalm 34, 2 in the King James Version, David says, my soul shall make her boast of the Lord. Now, that sounds kind of funny to us who speak English because, wait, wait David was a man. What's he talking about there? My soul shall make her boast of the Lord. Well, it is a reflection of the fact that the word soul in Hebrew, nephesh, is feminine. 
and that the corresponding pronouns are also feminine. So my soul, my nephesh, shall make her boast in the Lord. And so since wisdom, the word wisdom in Hebrew is feminine, it just seems most natural that, that if we're going to personify wisdom, that we would do so as a, a woman. And that's exactly what we find. In Proverbs 7, verse 4, it says, Say to wisdom, you are my sister. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. Now, in most places in the book of Proverbs, Solomon speaks to his sons directly as a father. He just speaks as a father to a son. For example, in chapter 1, verse 8, My son, hear the instruction of your father. Verse 10, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. So normally it's a father to a son directly. But there are places where under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Solomon uses the, uh, the literary device of personification of wisdom. And uh, that is one of, these, uh, one of the uh, examples in Proverbs 9. But it started back in, in chapter 1, verse 20. Wisdom calls aloud outside. She raises her voice in the open squares. Um, you're at chapter 9. Look at chapter 1, verse 8. Excuse me, chapter 8, verse 1. Does not wisdom cry out and understanding lift up her voice? She takes her stand on the top of the high hill and so forth. So there are times where he uses the technique of personification to impart wisdom to his sons who are the, the, the historic target, if you will, or the audience of this book. But of course it is for all of us, all of God's people of all times. But this is a literary device. There is no literal woman named wisdom. This is not teaching there is a literal woman doing these things. However, it is critical for us to understand that wisdom and what is taught here ultimately does point to a person. Ultimately, it does point and find its fulfillment in a person, and that person is none other than the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we go through Proverbs 9, understand that it is ultimately pointing to him. Now, how do we know that that's so? Well, we have a general consideration, and then we have a specific consideration. Number one, the entire Bible ultimately testifies of the Lord Jesus Christ. The entire Bible ultimately testifies to the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I and my family, we're members of Grace Community Church, your sister church over in Dawsonville. Uh, we are affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention. And the doctrinal statement of the Southern Baptist Convention, which is called the Baptist Faith and Message, it leaves some things to be desired. Uh, but it, I like what it says under the doctrine of Scripture. It says this, All Scripture is a testimony to Christ, who is himself the focus of divine revelation. I'm going to say that again. All scripture is a testimony to Christ, who is himself the focus of divine revelation. This book is primarily about Christ. He is the supreme topic from Genesis to Revelation. He said so himself. He said to the Jewish religious leaders in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life and these are they which testify of me. He's saying you search the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them and you do, but you're missing the fact that they testify of me. And in John 5, 46, he says, for if you believed Moses, and what he means is the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, if you believed Moses, 
you would believe me for he wrote about me. So the entire Bible is ultimately a testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're in the middle of our annual Bible conference at Grace Community Church, and yesterday one of the songs, it's a fairly new song to me, I think it is called Christ the, the True and Better Adam, and it kind of has a quick walk through Scripture to show that Christ is the true and better Adam, he's the true and better Isaac, he's the true and better Moses, the true and better David, and the refrain says, Amen, Amen, from beginning to end, Christ the story his the glory, hallelujah, amen. From beginning to end, Christ the story. It's ultimately about him. Now, that does not mean that as we are studying scripture, that we're supposed to see things and make up things that are, there, that, 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 that are supposedly there that really aren't there. That's irresponsible. That dishonors the word of God. Uh, we're not try, to try to allegorize scripture. We're not talking about that. But what we are talking about is that overall, it is his story. And so it is right to see him through from the beginning to end, it is ultimately pointing to Christ. So when we say that wisdom, what we're going to read about wisdom ultimately points to Christ, that is based in part because everything in Scripture ultimately points to him. But then there's a specific consideration why we can say that, and that is that the Bible itself calls Christ and his gospel the wisdom of of God. You don't have to turn there, but listen to 1 Corinthians 1, 22 through 24. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. He is the power of God and he is the wisdom of God. And then verse 30 of that chapter says, but of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So he is called the wisdom of God. And Paul writes in Colossians 2, 3, in whom in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. They all culminate in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the wisdom of God. Now, I gave you one definition of personification. Here's another definition that Merriam-Webster's gives. A person who has a lot of a particular quality and who is the perfect example of someone who has that quality. A person who has a lot of a particular quality, they probably should have said or, who is the perfect example of someone who has that quality. Folks, our Lord Jesus Christ is the perfect example of wisdom. And he did not have just a lot of wisdom. He had perfect wisdom, and he was the fullest expression of wisdom. Now, there is a, I think, an inextricable connection with the way Christ is presented in John chapter 1. Do you remember in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and chapter 14 says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us? That is a title of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Word of God. We would say this is the inspired written Word of God. He is the incarnate Word of God, God becoming flesh and dwelling among us. But there's a connection with him being the wisdom of God and the, the word of God. Again, John 1, 1 through 4, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Uh, in him was life, and the life was the light of 
of men. Now, look back at chapter 8. I'm going to get to chapter 9, but uh, look at chapter 8, beginning in verse 12. Now, keep what we just read in John's gospel in mind as we look at this and see the similarities. Look at verses uh, 12 through 14. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence and find out knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance, and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. Counsel is mind and sound wisdom. I am understanding. I have strength. Drop down to verse 22 through 20. 27. Uh, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way. Before his works of old, I have been established from everlasting. In the beginning was the word. Uh, from the beginning, before there was ever an earth. Verse 24, when there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While as yet he had not made earth or the fields or the primeval dust of the world, when he prepared the heavens, I was there. And then look at uh, verses 34 through 36. He says, Blessed is the man who listens to me, the word, the wisdom, watching daily at my gates, waiting at the posts of my door. And whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who sins against me wrongs his own soul. All those who hate me love death. So we have this connection with Christ being the word of God and the wisdom of God. It is personified. Um, we find in Luke eleven forty nine, Jesus said, Therefore the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute. So the wisdom of God said this, the word of God. We're talking about a person. So let me, let me wrap that part up and say this. If, if we do a Bible study on the topic of wisdom, or we're preparing a Sunday school lesson or a discipleship class lesson or a sermon, if we're, if we're doing a study on wisdom and it doesn't eventually get to Christ, it doesn't culminate in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, at best that study is incomplete, but it actually almost constitutes a crime against Scripture because Jesus Christ is the epitome, the culmination, the very embodiment of wisdom. And so we're on solid ground saying that what is said about wisdom in Proverbs chapter 9 is ultimately true of Christ or foreshadows Christ and things about him. Now, you'll find liberal theologians who would absolutely scoff at that interpretation because they don't believe that this is the inspired word of God, a unified witness uh, they believe it is just a collection of disjointed religious writings. And they would actually absolutely scoff that you and I would take maybe just about anything out of the Old Testament and say that pertains to the Lord Jesus Christ. But we know because this book is from God, it is a unified witness that ultimately it does speak to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you a couple selections from some commentaries just to show you that we're on track when we take that, uh, that approach to it. Uh, this is not to say that we agree with everything these commentators said, but Kyle and DeLitch said, This wisdom the poet here personifies. He does not speak of the person as logos, that would be the word, but the further progress of the revelation points to her actual personification in the logos. In the beginning was the logos. Matthew Henry, that it is an intelligent and divine person that here speaks seems very plain, and that it is not meant of mere essential property of the divine nature, for wisdom here has 
personal properties and actions. And that intelligent divine person can be no other than the Son of God himself to whom the principal things here spoken of wisdom are attributed in other scriptures, and we must explain scripture by itself. If Solomon himself designed only the praise of wisdom as it is an attribute of God by which he made the world and governs it, so to recommend to men the study of that wisdom which belongs to them, yet the Spirit of God who indicted what he wrote carried him, as David often, to such expressions as could agree to no other than the Son of God and would lead us into the knowledge of great things concerning him. All divine revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him. And here we are told who and what he is, as God designed in the eternal counsels to be the mediator between God and man. The best exposition of these verses we have in the first four verses of John's gospel, in the beginning was the word. And finally, the expositor's Bible commentary. Yet how could the teacher, meaning Solomon, how could the teacher fail to feel that someday there must be an incarnate wisdom and describing wisdom personified and in following out her sweet and high-souled utterance, the teacher unconsciously to himself becomes a prophet and presents, as we shall see, a faint and wavering image of him who of God was made unto men wisdom, of him who was actually to live a concrete human life embodying the divine wisdom as completely as many poor stained human lives here embody the undivine folly of vice. The description here then is an adumbration or a foreshadow of something as yet not seen or fully understand. So when we, uh, point number one, her identity, ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ. Wisdom is the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look at number two, her house. Wisdom has built her house. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. When I think about a house, what does a house or a home convey to you? Well, in a very basic sense, it is a structure uh, or building for, for people to dwell in, uh, to find shelter, uh, to find protection, but also to, to find fellowship and companionship with a family or others who may live there. Uh, it's a place where we store our provisions, where we lay our head to rest. There's a lot of, of just a, a powerful things that are, uh, that are conveyed to us by the picture of a house. Well, Solomon tells us that wisdom built a house, and we're going to see that she invites us to come and to live and to dwell in her house. It further says she has hewn out her seven pillars. Now, I, I, I mentioned earlier that we shouldn't try to read things into Scripture that aren't there, and there have been some fanciful interpretations and identification of what the seven pillars are. Uh, there's some who say, well, it refers to the seven heavens. A Roman Catholic interpretation was it refers to the seven sacraments, and you can find all sorts of things like that. That's what we should not do. If the Bible is not clear in identifying it, then we just need to be uh, humble and say we don't know exactly what is being referred to there. Some say, well, it's just referring to cert certain architecture of the day. Maybe that's true. If we were going to venture a spiritual uh, uh, meaning of it, we might uh, note that in Proverbs, there's at least one verse that denotes seven uh, as a number of completeness. And so maybe uh, there is a, 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 some idea of a, a complete house or a, a strong house. That would be bolstered. 
and by the fact that she has hewn her pillars. The word in Hebrew, hew, means to dig, divide, and to quarry. So we're talking about stone pillars. So perhaps God in his word here is trying to convey to us how, how strong this house is that is built on his wisdom, which is an impenetrable rock. God's truth is complete, sufficient, strong, and omnipotent like himself. But whatever the specifics are, there is in this phrase that she has built herself a house, a foreshadow of the house of God. Uh, the Geneva Bible note for this verse says, Christ has prepared him a church. Christ has prepared him a church. And indeed, we know that the church is called the house of God. Not this literal building, but the people of God are called the house of God. Hebrews 3, 6 says, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are. Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are. And in 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul writes to his young associate, he says, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So the church is a house. We, the people of the Lord Jesus Christ, his followers, we are a house, a house that wisdom built. Let's go on to number three and look at her provisions, which is in verse two. She has slaughtered her meat. She has mixed her wine. She has also furnished her table. Okay, so look at her, her provisions. So Lady Wisdom is pictured as having built this, this great house, this mansion. And here in verse 2, then we find that she has prepared a feast. She has prepared a banquet. It says that she slaughtered her meat. Maybe lamb or beef, the, the, the fatted calf comes to mind. Uh, the picture here is of, of just the ultimate feast and banquet. She has mixed her wine. Uh, scholars tell us that in those days, wine was generally stored as a thick concentrated congealed substance and then when they were getting ready to serve it they would add water to it they would mix water into it so she's mixed her wine she's she's readied the drink and it says she's furnished her table so she spread this table she's got the meat the wine the vegetables the bread the utensils she has spread a choice feast but we're not talking about a literal feast as wonderful as those can be we're talking about a spiritual feast because that is what wisdom is. The wisdom of God, the word of God is a spiritual feast. Over in Proverbs 24 verse 13 through 14 we read this, my son eat honey because it is good and the honeycomb which is sweet to your taste so shall the knowledge of wisdom be to your soul. If you have found it, there is a prospect and your hope will not be cut off. So shall the knowledge of wisdom be to your soul. It'll be as sweet as honey and the honeycomb. It'll be sweet. Do you consider the word of God to be sweet? Do you want to feast on it? Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 15, 16, your words were found and I ate them and your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. Your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. That is the feast that is spread by wisdom. 
the wisdom of God, the word of, of God. And the child of God delights in the word. Now we know, we, we admit that in our frailty and our flesh, there are times that we're, we're cool and cold and disinterested toward the word. But we also know that if we're genuine children of God, the Holy Spirit who inspired the word brings the child of God back to the word. We ultimately delight in it and we are to feast on it. When you and I come to church, to the house of God, uh, we are to feast on the word. When we come here, the word is to be spread out like a feast to us, whether it's in the Sunday school, discipleship classes, or, or uh, from, from the pulpit here. We come wanting the word, hungering for the word, and the word should be presented. It should be presented as a, a spiritual feast. And again, it is the word of God that we are ultimately talking about. That is the provisions of her house. Let's go on to verse 3 and look at her servants. This is point number 4 of the message. Her servants. So she built the house, spread the feast. And I'm sorry, verse 3. Her servants. She has sent out her maidens. She cries out from the highest places of the city, whoso is simple, let him turn in here. So keep the picture here. Wisdom is portrayed as a woman and a, a very wealthy and powerful woman, chaste and modest and so forth. We might even have the idea of a queen here. She owns this, this great house. She is generous. She desires everyone to come and to dwell in it, to be a guest, even to, even to, to make, make their home in it, and to partake of the feast that she has prepared. So she's done all this. She's got it ready. And so now she sends out her maidens to issue the invitation to come. Uh, a wealthy lady in that day would have had young women servants or attendants. And so she sends them out and says she cries from the highest places of the city. Now that could mean that she goes out with them or that she is sending them out as messengers and ambassadors. And so it is as though she is speaking through them. Come, Come and dwell in my house and come and partake of the spiritual feast. Come, I invite you to come in. Now, it's hard not to think of the Great Commission, right? The Great Commission of our Lord Jesus Christ to his disciples. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Every creature. You and I are the servants of wisdom embodied in Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the wisdom of God. He is the word of God, and he has given us a commission, starting with the original 12 or 11 and, and, and growing from there to all disciples. Every one of us has the responsibility, let's call it the privilege, of going out and inviting people to the spiritual feast that is Christ we are inviting the foolish to come in and to enjoy, to embrace wisdom. Keep your place in Proverbs 9 and turn to Matthew chapter 22 for just a minute. Chapter 22, we'll read verses 1 through 4. Because as we read and study Proverbs 9, it's really hard not to also think of the parable of the wedding feast that our Lord gave. Matthew 22, beginning of verse 1. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven 
is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. And again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted calf are killed, and all things are ready, come to the wedding. And we know that our Lord, that parable, is, it is a parable, which, the meaning of which is the gospel, where the gospel call is to go out and to invite men and women and young adults and children to come, come to, the, to God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So you and I are, are those servants. If you are a disciple of Christ, you have called to be like one of wisdom's maidens sent out to share the gospel. Now, we know that depending on our situation in life, our calling, our office, there's some who may have a greater responsibility than others or greater opportunities than others, but all of us need to be sharing the gospel. A good question to ask ourselves at regular intervals is, how long has it been since I shared the gospel with a lost person? How long has it been since I gave a gospel tract to somebody how long has it been? Now, that's a good question to ask. And uh, when I ask myself that at some intervals, I have to hang my head in shame and say, it's been way too long. It's been way too long. I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, wisdom embodied who has spread a spiritual feast of his word, which ultimately I mean, is centered on the gospel of salvation. Who have I told recently? Who have I told? You and I, by God's grace, have entered Christ's house. We've been made part of his family. In that sense, we're not guests. We're, we, we now live there. We're part of his church, his blood-bought church. We experience the perpetual feast of his grace and his goodness and his joy. And in turn, we're to go out and bid others to come. About 10 years ago, I was uh, introduced at another church to a hymn I'd never heard of. I had heard of the, uh, the composer, or the lyricist, Isaac Watts. We've all heard of Isaac Watts, and we sing a lot of his hymns. But this one is not in a lot of modern hymn books. It's a shame that that is the case. But it is called How Sweet and Awful. Now, not awful in the sense that we use it, but in the sense of which it was classically used, full of all. How sweet and awful. Listen to these words and see how Isaac Watts pulls on the imagery of what we're looking at. How sweet and awful is the place with Christ within the doors where everlasting love displays the choicest of her stores. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cry with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. T'was the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sins. Pity the nations, O our God, constrain the earth to come. Send thy victorious word abroad and bring the strangers home. Well, he has. He has sent you and me to take his word abroad, to share the gospel, and to call them to come into this house of Christ and to feast on his grace 
and his goodness. We're like wisdom's maidens. Can't help thinking about Isaiah 55, 1 through 3. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear, come to me, hear, and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David which is ultimately the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the gospel, the message that you and I are called upon to share. And we'll end then looking a little bit more at that message. Point number five, her message. Look again at verses four through five. This is the message that, that wisdom cries out through her maidens, her servants. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. As for him who lacks understanding, she says to him, Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine which I have mixed. Forsake foolishness and live and go in the way of understanding. So she sends out that message and the, and the audience is the foolish, the simple, those who lack understanding. Now, when we pull all this together, we have a, a picture or portrayal of those who do not have wisdom. They do not have the word of God or they have been rejecting it. They live in contradiction to it. Uh, they're willingly ignorant. We have to underscore that because scripture says that men know God, but they suppress what they know. We'll read a little bit, bit, bit about that in a, in a moment. They suppress what they know. And so she sends out her maidens and says, forsake that foolishness. Now, foolishness in scripture has a somewhat different connotation than the way you and I use it. When we say somebody is foolish, we mean that that guy lacks good sense or judgment. He's going to get himself killed. He has a lack of caution. But in Scripture, when we read about a fool or foolishness, there is a moral and spiritual dimension to it. And that moral and spiritual dimension is that of evil. Let me give you a couple examples because we especially find this in the Proverbs. In Proverbs verse 13, or excuse me, chapter 13, verse 19, it says, But it is an abomination to fools to depart from evil. So see, the fool abides in evil. He practices evil, and, and he will not depart evil. So you see that moral dimension of being a fool? And then in chapter 14, verse 9, it says, Fools mock at sin. Fools mock at sin. They hear the law of God, which, uh, which proclaims them guilty as sinners, and they just mock at it. They laugh at it. And so you see how when the Bible refers to a fool, it has a, a moral and spiritual dimension that you and I don't normally uh, uh, intend when we talk about foolishness. So ultimately, what this means is, is that every man in his natural state, that means uh, unsaved, unregenerate, is, by biblical definition, a fool. He is a fool. Now listen to the words of Paul in Romans 1, 18 through 25. 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. That's what we would call natural revelation. This is supernatural revelation, written revelation, that is natural revelation. And what Paul is teaching is, is there is enough out there that's, that, uh, to, to proclaim the existence of God and some things about his attributes that men are without excuse. They are without excuse even if they never had a Bible. Verse uh, 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, into birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lusts of their heart to dishonor their bodies among them who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. Amen. So you see how the Bible lumps all of us humanity into this category of foolish, foolish, having rejected the knowledge of God and preferred sin and idolatry in his place. So all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. So all of us are fools. And so wisdom sends her maidens out and says, forsake foolishness, forsake foolishness. It is a call to repent of sin to repent of folly and to embrace wisdom, which is, as we have seen, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 5, come and eat of my bread and drink of the wine which I have mixed. Now, they don't deserve to be able to go to wisdom's house. They don't deserve to sit there and to feast on what she has prepared, but she is of grace and generosity and invites them, even commands them to come. Now, when I read about bread and wine, I can't help but think about the cross. The Lord's Supper, where we partake of the bread and the wine or the fruit of the, fruit of the vine, and it pictures the body of Christ and the blood of Christ shed for us. Uh, Jesus, in a passage that is somewhat difficult and has been misinterpreted, but John 6, 53 through 56, then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day, for my flesh is food indeed. My blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. It goes without saying that Christ is not advocating cannibalism. This is a spiritual truth truth. He is using this as an illustration of coming to him, repenting of our sins and placing our faith in his body, which was given for us and his blood, which was shed for us. When he died on the cross, he was paying the, 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 the debt of uh, the guilt of his people. He died in their place that they might be forgiven, that they might be saved and come into the family of God and have a home in heaven. And so he's saying, come to me, come to me, forsake your sins, repent, trust in nothing but me, feast upon me. I am life. I am eternal life. 
So embracing Christ by faith is the equivalent of feasting on his blood and on his flesh. Wisdom says, come, eat of my bread, drink of my wine. She says there in verse 6, forsake foolishness and live. Because if you stay on the path of foolishness, you stay on the path of unrepentant sin, you don't come to Christ, it's going to end in eternal misery. Eternal misery. Jesus said in John, again, 654, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up the last day. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him embraces him by faith. If trust, confidence should not perish but have everlasting life. And so the message of the gospel or the message of wisdom, which is ultimately the gospel, is come and dine. Why are you, why are you suffering spiritual hunger and thirst why are you spending your money for things that can't satisfy? Come to me, repent, receive me as Savior, and have eternal life, eternal life. So that is wisdom's message. It is ultimately Christ's message. It is the gospel, forsake foolishness and live. Now, let's apply this to two different groups, to believers. Maybe you're already in the house. You're already a child at home in wisdom's house, in the church of the living God, the family of God. You've accepted Christ as Savior. You sat down at the table. Well, you and I need to hear the warning of Scripture, and that is that even as those who have, have made this initial acceptance of wisdom, of the gospel, we can be foolish too in our daily lives. We are warned against this. Ephesians 5, 15 through 17 says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, Paul is writing to Christians, those who are already in the house. But we've got to keep at it. We've got to, we've got to, we've got to keep coming back to the table We've got to keep taking in the word of God so that we might grow in wisdom and not act like fools. We need to learn the word. We need to gain that knowledge and apply that knowledge and obey that knowledge. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, as the apostle James would have, uh, would have put it. And we need to understand this, folks. Oh, please, we need to understand this. Seeking wisdom, I've already said this, seeking wisdom is not about collecting more facts. We need to do that. We need to grow in a knowledge of the Word of God, but it is ultimately a pursuit of a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the wisdom of God. He is our pursuit. It's about delighting in the Lord Jesus. It's about learning more about Him, seeing Him from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21. It's reading the Word and, and, and asking the Holy Spirit, open up my eyes. Isn't that what the psalmist said in Psalm 119-18? Open thou mine eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of thy law. Yes, even the law points to Christ. As Jesus said to those leaders, if you believed Moses, you would believe in me because he wrote about me. And so we say, Lord, show me Christ. Show me Christ in the scriptures that I might delight in him 
that I might rejoice in him and thereby glorifying him. So your pursuit of wisdom is a pursuit ultimately of Christ. But then a word to any unbelievers that might be here today. Again, the invitation to you is to forsake foolishness and to come to the wisdom of God, to repent of your sins, to, to acknowledge that you are a guilty sinner in God's eyes and that the wages of sin is death, according to Romans 6.23. But it also says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so wisdom cries out to you before it is too late, come, come to the house, come to the feast, come to Christ. Don't refuse, don't refuse. And with that in mind, finally, we're going to read out of Proverbs 1. Just turn to Proverbs 1. This will be our last reading. Proverbs 1, beginning in verse 20. There is a dire warning to those who continue to refuse to come in repentance and faith, or to come to wisdom as it is uh, presented here. Let's read from verses 20 through 33 of chapter 1. Wisdom calls aloud outside. She raises her voice in the open squares. She cries out in the chief concourses. At the opening of the gates in the city, she speaks her words. How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? For scorners delight in their scorning and fools hate knowledge. Turn at my reproof. Surely I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called and you refused... I have stretched out my hand and no one regarded. Because you disdained all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your terror comes. When your terror comes like a storm, your destruction, and your destruction comes like a whirlwind, when your distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their own way and be filled to the full with their own fancies. For the turning away of the simple will slay them and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will dwell safely and will be secure without fear of evil. How tragic to stay on a course of foolishness, to love your sins more than you love God, to refuse the invitation, the invitation that is extended at the price of the suffering and death of the Son of God, to refuse the offer of salvation, to stay on that path until death, and then it's too late. So as men will cry out at that day, but that day it'll be too late. The Bible says, for it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. There's no second chance, folks. There's no second chance. Now this does not mean that God sits in heaven and laughs and mocks at people in hell, but wisdom personified will do that. For eternity, the unsaved will have running through their minds what they rejected. Oh, how I wish I had listened. Charles Spurgeon said he, or wrote, he who does not prepare for death is more than an ordinary fool. He is a madman. It is insanity. 
It is insanity to stay on a path of foolishness. Insanity to persist in sin. When God in this day offers forgiveness and eternal life through Jesus Christ the Lord, who is the very embodiment of wisdom, come to wisdom. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you so much for your grace. We extol your grace because we know that ultimately no one comes to you without your grace at work in their lives. We give you all the glory for our salvation. We thank you for opening the minds of sinners to the truth of the gospel, regenerating them and giving them a soft heart and the ability to repent and to place faith in Christ. You said that's a gift and we thank you for it and praise you for it, Lord. And because we know that your Holy Spirit can open hearts and minds, we pray that if there are others among us today who were as we were, we pray that you would show mercy, that you would open up hearts and minds to the gospel, and that you would glorify your Son by bringing sinners before him in repentance and faith. And then help us all, Lord, to continually feast upon your word and to gain wisdom, knowledge of you, and to obey that, to walk in it, Lord, to your glory and to our good. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.